0: Thanks for joining us today for another edition of Life Sciences and Biotech CEOs. I'm Tim Doherty, your host, and our guest today is Tori Smith, the co-founder and CEO of Endiotics, a medical robotics company. Prior to launching Endiotics, Tori developed medical devices in the areas of endometrial ablation, atherectomy, therapeutic hypothermia, sleep apnea, vascular closure, are there any more? <laughs> Ultimately, selling three companies to larger entities. Tori was trained as an aerospace engineer, but he's always had a deep interest in technology. But Tori's also a Renaissance man of sorts, in addition to his engineering endeavors. Tori is also the principal founder of the international arts collective known as Sexton, and his own art has been featured at the Smithsonian and now most recently at the party for the opening of the Tesla Gigafactory in Austin. It's a pleasure to have you with us today, Tori. So Endiatic is uh, involved in the manufacture of tiny robotic pills equipped with a camera and capable of controlled movement inside the human body. How did you come up with that idea
1: so I, I basically think this idea is, is relatively obvious. Um, you know, our, our technology is basically just four little propellers, um, you know, on electric motors. So you can sort of think of it as a, a quad pump jet, um, which really just borrows the, the control laws from the quadcopter world. You know, th- this is a yeah. drone pill that, that you can pilot it around inside the stomach. Um, but to me, the, the concept of tiny robots in the human body has always seemed obvious because you read about it in books, you see it in movies, um, you know, it's it's a common theme in science fiction, you know, send in the nanobots to go fix the problem, right? And I just started to get kind of frustrated that, you know, that that didn't seem to be real in the sense that there weren't products treating patients. And so eventually when I saw... Uh, given imaging, the, the makers of the uh, the first pill camera uh, back in 2014, they sold to uh, Covidian for uh, you know almost a billion dollars. Um, I realized, hey, you know, I think I think maybe the time is is now to see if we can take it to the next level.
0: Okay, so how does it really
1: work? What sure. The way it works is, uh, you know, let me take a big prototype here. Right, this is our our first prototype pool bot. Um, this would uh, antagonize would the pools. Um, we were very grateful to Fred Weber, who used to be the CTO over at AMD, for loaning us his pool early in the company. Um, but the way we move around is we use these little propellers um, to push and pull through those lumens, and we're able to get most of the control that you would get out of um, you know like a normal aircraft. So we can we can move forward and backward. Uh, we can turn left and right, we can pitch up and pitch down, and we can also spin rapidly on our axis in place. And when okay. you combine all of those motions, you can basically do just about anything in a nice fluid volume. So we ask our, we ask our patients, uh, which you know up till now have been the founders, to drink a bunch of water and turn themselves into a water bag for a few minutes.
0: Okay. So I know that you were the first to swallow the pill.
1: Right? I, I am. Yeah, go for
0: it. What were your initial expectations and how does that match with the ultimate reality?
1: Sure, um, I think with our first swallow, we just wanted to get any kind of a good signal, right? Um, we knew our video quality would be very limited. Uh, we were bl- like grayscale back then, like 48 pixels square, uh, not, not very good frames per minute. And, and we're a little bit better now, but you know, it's a, it's a long challenge, right? working through all these, uh, these performance metrics that so we're trying to you know, get to a clinical level. We we're just looking for anything real, anything that would tell us resoundingly that, that we were onto something. And a couple of minutes into the swallow as we're sort of driving around this, uh, this sort of like grayscale moonscape of my stomach, yeah. um, we saw this piece of tissue that was sloughing off. And the neat thing about it was even with our terrible resolution, you were definitely seeing something specific. You're like, that is a piece of tissue that's coming off. It looks kind of like a tapeworm. And we literally went like, whoa, you know, as we, as we were filming. And we realized this, this thing has legs, right? If, if, we can, if we can tune this thing, if we can improve it inc- incrementally, I think we're going to be, you know, giving doctors a tool that, that is relevant to millions of patients every year.
0: So you designed it. And then you swallowed it yourself as a first test. And since now we iterate sort of forward a little bit, you've been working with uh, Dr. Campari at Mayo Clinic, Florida.
1: Sure. Well, how I would say
0: that, Yeah. How did that relationship Germany?
1: Right. Well, first of all, I would, say, I would say James designed it. Um, I helped him tune it, Alex got the, the radio working and and uh, Dan Dan was the one who designed the electric circuits right so let's let's give these guys credit but right. getting to getting from our living room here I mean first in human was actually on this this couch behind me um, getting to you know from our living room in Silicon Valley to to Jacksonville Florida to the Mayo Clinic um, was basically just a a lesson in really hardcore networking right we started reaching out to any gastroenterologist that would be willing to talk to us and we were we were warned that the community um, has a reputation for being a well I, i don't think we need to speak down to it i think we should simply say that gastroenterologists spend a huge amount of time and effort get acquiring the skills and experiences they do to be able to do the job that they do so when you come along with a disruptive concept you know you have to for your extraordinary claim provide some extraordinary evidence right so the, the right. bar is high and that's where the bar should be frankly um but after a few years we we made friends with uh, increasingly high profile gi's and i think that the primary credit would go to dr hay who runs king's college london's gastroenterology entorology program. We became friends on LinkedIn. Um, we had this sort of spiritual alignment. And uh, it was Dr. Hay who introduced us to his close friend, Dr. Kumbari, um, And that's when the relationship, you know, really started to, to take hold in very early 2021.
0: Okay, so that how many years has this start to present? Going sure. On?
1: So, you know, I, I personally went uh, full time on the idea with my co founder, James Erd, um, in I would say like October of 2018, that's when, that's, well, I guess I still had a job at that point, but James went full-time. Um, I joined the Founder Institute at the very beginning of January, 2019. Um, I managed to uh, get to let go from my from my medical device job uh, and, uh, and actually got some severance, which was very helpful. Um, we incorporated the company in March of 2019, and we've been running ever since. So the company's officially just over three years old. OK,
0: so that's a lot of progress, really, in two years.
1: I mean, we measure progress from, you know, we, we try to look at tangible things, right? So like, here's, here's my first notebook. It's called Endiotics One. And, <laughs> you know, I used to think the company logo was going to be a shield, this, this, this shield that's like a three-part shield protecting human life. And the three parts of the shield would be endoscopy, diagnostics, and treatment. Crush that together, you've got Endiotics um no one liked that logo so we don't use that today but we basically walked into founder institute with you know notebook sketches of of how a robot might might be able to move around in the human body i, wow. I think the submarine is in there and, and we were pretty agnostic right like would it be an inchworm would it be like a nitinol mesh tube or a series of piezoelectrically driven legs i mean we have no idea. For a while, my favorite idea was the thumper that would thump its way back and forth, but with these little jelly fingers selectively move in one direction. And we, we tried more than 30 different ideas before we finally realized, you know, if you drink a bunch of water, you become a water bag in a part of your body that has an unmet need, the stomach. And we realized, let's let's make a product that can function in the stomach and and affect patients lives and then let's see how far we can go with it elsewhere in the body
0: so let's go off on a little tangent here for a minute and tell me about what the founder's institute was like cuz i kind of picture it as you know shark tank for technology
1: yeah okay yeah that's that's a reasonable that's a reasonable you know guess right founder institute is perhaps the most humanitarian, like it's, it's maybe the most positive institution I've ever come across in my life. Um, the, the, the founders Adeo Resi um, and, and and the people he's brought together will let anyone in the world, literally now, because they're, they're a global institution, um, including almost a hundred percent virtual now, um, anyone in the world can apply to Founder Institute um, be screened for some basic criteria to see if it makes sense for them to to actually join a cohort and then learn how to rip the band-aid off which is their comfort zone which is their old life you know like i think i think a lot of us wish we were you know 19 years old and dropping out of stanford to 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 launch google say um what do you what do you do if you were in my position 37 years old and depressed and you know kind of Kind of arrogant in a cubicle, kind of you know, it's a it was such a naive existence I was leading, um, and and yet Founder Institute helped me to to feel like I could do this, and they showed me uh, every step of the way what to do week by week. I, it's grueling though, I you know they they target about a thirty percent graduation rate, so it's it's not at all a, a walk in the park. But if you're committed to your idea, um, it's extremely inexpensive and open to anyone willing to apply. So are
0: there are there um, sort of uh, groups that go through the process together or are yeah, you doing absolutely. it sort of
1: on your own at your they, own pace? What they happens? go. No, it's not at your own pace. <laughs> no, 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 no. OK. Founder Institute is a boot camp for founders. Ryan Micheletti uh, is, is one of the guys, uh, along with Mike um, who who really, really changed my life. They were part of my cohort. Very high up at, at Founder Institute. Um, Ryan said on the first day, This is a boot camp for founders. Everything is a test, right? Because the difference between a successful founder and a person dreaming about starting a company is that the successful founder is willing to be humiliated and terrified um, and fail publicly almost every day of their existence for years in a row that that's what a successful founder's journey looks like is just sucking really bad and getting your butt kicked um but but relentlessly being unwilling to give up right and so founder institute um is unrelenting in their program you know one of my homework assignments was quit my job or get fired by the next week one of my homework assignments was incorporate the company by next week or, or, uh, or I will fail the program. Um, and it's, it's pass fail, right? It's you're either in or you're out. You know, I think the so one of the most fun homework assignments I had was raise $100,000 in the next two weeks or you fail the program. Um, wow. and, and we did it. You know, we walked in with that notebook sketch, but by the end of the program, we had uh put together a little 3D printer using our own money, a couple thousand bucks. um, And we started making actual hardware. And while PoolBot is not glamorous, PoolBot was real. And it allowed us to raise $185,000 from, you know, our, our, our close personal professional network.
0: Wow. Wow. So you kind of asked me rhetorically on our first meeting, do you think, that a moving eyeball inside the stomach has value. And so I turn that sort of back to you more directly. What do you think the implications of PillBot are for gastroenterology?
1: Sure. You know what? Uh, We're going to be really focused on what what this first product can do and making it real, right? So like we said, we started with this ridiculous hardware. I had rooms full of investors laughing at us not in a malicious way but you know i would get on a stage and pitch micro robotics in the human body and i'd hold this thing up <laughs> you know that's kind of funny <laughs> that's, but but the money that we raised with that was sufficient for us to start going to custom electronics we left the raspberry pi hardware behind but you can still see jb weld and epoxy right you know it's, right. it's not very glamorous that got us down to thumb size um this helped us raise our next round um and then you know here we are at sort of the fingertip scale now and you know we're in a whole different, different world. So, so what do we think we can do for the world of gastroenterology? What can we do for patients? Well, if you're a founder listening in on this, it's all about differentiation. It's all about being able to say, I have an idea that if I can pull off this idea with my team, it's going to change the game. You you never want to found a company that's like, I'm a slightly better version of something else, or I'm going to take two other business models and I'm going to sort of combine them and take credit for it. Like, don't kid yourself. No one, no one is going to be interested in talking to you. So what we're saying is we think we can create a technology that will allow a doctor to actively and in real time, look around inside your body, in this case, the stomach, completely decoupled from a hospital visit itself, right? This technology can be deployed to the patient's living room and you just uh, essentially hop on a Zoom call, much like this call, and uh, just pair the thing, swallow it, and another video screen should pop up and you get to see what the robot sees. And that ability for a doctor to look around inside a patient without months of hospital visits... Um, w- which represents sort of the, the appropriate, but, you know, the, the unfortunate but necessary gatekeeping process that balances out the risks and costs of a traditional sedation-based hospital endoscopy. If we can move that 10 to 15 minutes of doctor time right to the beginning of the process in the patient's living room, uh, then we're really changing the game. We, we could drastically lower the cost to a typical patient and really drastically open up access to patients all around the world.
0: So, um, do you think that the pillbot might impact medicine in the underdeveloped world
1: that's that's one of the most exciting areas here, right? I was blown away when founder Institute Crimea River forced me to do market research. you know i i w- I' wouldn't very much uh, what many would call a technologist i I think things are cool, and I chase those things because it's fun to work on. Uh, I think I'm just fortunate that we happen to have a potential product market fit here. Um, I'm not worried about the market. I'm worried about getting the product to work well enough to address that market. Uh, But our research showed us that patients in the developing world um, will often have to take trains and buses and even airplanes to travel hundreds of miles to an endoscopy clinic just so that a doctor can have 10 minutes to look around visually inside their stomach. And, you know, we're basically making a technology here. Let me, let me hold up our entire hardware as it stands today. Okay, here we go. So this is our, this is, this is the system. The system is the the pill bot itself, um, a little USB dongle and a smartphone. Um, And it could be a laptop too, but but basically, that's what it looks like. Um, this this right now is about forty five dollars. Um, we'd like to we'd like to get the disposable part of the system down to about twenty five bucks to build it, um, and then you know we can figure out how much it makes sense to sell it for in a typical market. In the U.S. market, um, a passive pill camera retails for five hundred dollars. So if I can build it for twenty five, sell it for five hundred here in the U.S., th- those are great unit economics. But let's let's imagine we're in a refugee camp in, in like you know sub-Saharan Africa. Okay, um, I'm sure we can sell it for much less. There there's still plenty of money we can make. But the bottom line is, if you can get this device, this little cheap packaged device, to that refugee camp, and like a suitcase of our product could treat hundreds of patients, right? Um, then the best doctor in the world could could have a look inside that patient. Um, and and figure out what's going on. But but we should add that many of the doctors we've spoken to in the developing world have asked us to make sure that while they love the data analytics and while they love the concept of a cloud-based control platform for it, they've all said one thing, please keep near field control active under all circumstances. So if the internet's down, let a local doctor be able to treat that patient directly as well which was a very important thing for us to learn. Um, and, and, you know, we have some of the best doctors in the world across the world. So there's no, need, there's no requirement that we remove the doctor from the situation. But with that being said, I sort of see this as like the ultimate hardcore telemedicine. Wow.
0: Wow. OK, so there, I know there are a couple of competitors. I know that Medtronic is How does PillBot differ from other competitors' offerings?
1: Sure. So uh, I'd like to give credit to our most direct competitors. Um, This company would be called Anx Robotica. They're they're based out of China, but they are FDA cleared in the United States. Um, I think their headquarters is in Dallas. I'm kind of hoping to see them at uh, uh, DDW, the upcoming GI conference, um, if possible. These folks are doing amazing work in the human stomach. And what they do is they take a traditional pill camera platform and they put a magnet inside it. And this thing now responds to magnetic fields. And their product is the magnetic pill camera in concert with a piece of capital equipment that you could sort of think of as like the baby brother of an MRI machine. This is not a multi million dollar machine. I think it's like a hundred thousand or, or, or maybe a little bit more than that. Okay. But the bottom line is they have a patient lie in a magnetic machine, and by manipulating powerful external magnetic fields, they induce motion and basically create the, the, the same thing we're trying to create the moving eyeball in the stomach. And in their clinical trial, where they gained FDA clearance, um, more than 90% of the patients. Who, who went through, who had both their, the magnetic capsule and a normal endoscopy, more than 90% said we absolutely prefer not to have tubes jammed into our sedated sure. body, right? right? Um, I'm
0: surprised 10% didn't.
1: But um, I, I don't know if it was 5% or 10%, so I'm, I'm saying more than 90%. Um, so Onks is really knocking it out of the park. And I, rather than be you know, worried about this, I, we need to give them full credit for an amazing achievement. Um, that, that particular technology does, does mean that the patient has to be in the hospital to receive the treatment, right? So that's that's kind of the big thing is that there's a machine that you need to get on a wait list to get into that machine. And that's where on the differentiation side, I think the endiotics stands to go address lots of patients. We can go get some market share for ourselves. That's great. But bear in mind that the global endoscopy devices market throughout the human body is a $67 billion market. Uh, the GI tract alone, where we are all beginning, but not where we want to end, that's a $9 billion market. We think we need as many players as possible active in this space in order to meet the patient need that's out there because COVID was terrible for the world of gastroenterology because millions of procedures were simply delayed or canceled because the physical doctor patient contact wasn't, uh, wasn't appropriate uh, when you balanced out the risks, right? So basically, thank you, Onx Robotica. Thank you, Navicam, which is their product, uh, because that actually does give us a, a, a good predicate to get through FDA quickly. Um, but you mentioned Medtronic. Medtronic, uh, we actually kind of feel like Medtronic are a bit more adjacent to us. Um, Medtronic currently owned the pill cam product line. This is what I'm holding right here. Um, you know, that started in 1997 in Israel with given imaging. 2001, they got FDA clearance. Um, 2014, they sold a the COVIDian, 860 million. We touched on that earlier. Uh, and then Medtronic bought COVIDian in 2015. Um, so the world of passive pill cameras and the world of active endoscopes represent those two different markets, right? GI tract uh, and endoscopy devices market, that's like, what, $9 billion. Passive pill camera market's about 500 million. And the reason for that disparity is that uh, if you ask a gastroenterologist how frequently they can use a pill camera, unfortunately, the, the result that comes back is passive pill cameras are about a one to 3% niche use product. Um, doctors need the ability to move around and look and do things Doctors need to be able to do their jobs, right? All of their training, all of those years of medical school and residency force them to need to look around uh, because, you know, yeah, everyone wants to go find the disease. That's, that's what you think. The layperson thinks, oh, we're going to go find the disease. But 80% of the time or more, you find nothing. Um, it's rare that you find a physical disease. What they are terrified about is that they are missing the disease. The concept of a false negative is the worst possible thing. That's the thing that we're all scared of. And that's where active devices that actually go move around and do things have access to a much larger market. Um, So for us, it's about six to 8 million patients in the US every year getting upper endoscopy. We would like to speak with that patient population and maybe pull Pull a substantial number of them, you know, out of the out of the out of the healthcare system, out of the hospital system specifically, and and go 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 have a look at them in their living rooms.
0: The question that comes to my mind is that I wasn't aware of. You said that that the passive camera market's about five hundred. Why does a company like Medtronic, I think it's around give or take one hundred and forty billion dollar company, um, why do they bother? with 500 million.
1: Well, Medtronic is, is not in any case dominated by passive pill cameras. That's just one of many right. product lines. And m- we need to give some credit to Medtronic here uh, because as much as, uh, as Anx Robotica has done with moving pill cameras, Jeff Martha partnered with, uh, with, with Amazon and Medtronic is now doing FDA cleared home delivery of passive pill cameras. And so basically, they have pioneered using this, this platform where it makes most sense. Um, so basically, a patient will, will qualify for the passive pill. You know, Even if it's a 1% to 3% use case, that's a lot of patients in the U.S. Um, and uh, Amazon will, will, will get the pill to their house. Um, they'll swallow it under appropriate direction. Um, and then Amazon Web Services is handling the data that comes out of it. And so uh, this is amazing. They've recently been FDA cleared. And so again, that's another very useful predicate for us when we right. start to you know go through FDA ourselves. Um, and so let's let's not to, you know let's not denigrate anyone here. But basically, Medtronic's done a huge, huge um, uh, accomplishment getting home swallowing of electronics approved by FDA. Right. You're also doing amazing work with artificial intelligence, getting more information out of that that stream of of pictures that comes out of the passive pill camera. And we we should expect to see that sort of increase the clinical uh, use profile. But with endiotics, look, we're a bunch of science fiction geeks that want to make tiny robotic surgeons. I mean, come on. Our dream here is not to be a better pill camera. Our dream is to put more than one camera on it, pointed in the same direction and boom, just wow, I'm in a giant stomach. This is cool. Wherever I point my head, the camera, you know, the the robot's propulsion system points the robot and holy cow, I have surgical robot arms now. Let's swim over, let's go, you know what? Let's go kill cancer right where it lives. Um, We feel that this concept of, it's almost like a magic school bus, right? If we can create this motion platform, first as a moving eyeball, but then as a, as a platform to do surgery. And then as an ever smaller platform that can do microsurgery, maybe we can go up the bile duct. Maybe we can have a look at the pancreas. Maybe we can leave the GI tract and go into places like the heart and the brain. Um, I think, I think it's going to be a really exciting world out there. And I think we're going to need a lot of help. We're going to need competing companies, we're going to need lots of new ideas. We're going to need the latest in manufacturing and, and energy. Um, but but this is this is a whole new universe, I think, that we're starting to open up. And we're just kind of proud to to be relevant right now. This is exciting.
0: What what do you think is the initial business opportunity?
1: Oh, very simple. How do you say uh, we we touched on six to eight million upper endoscopies in the, the the US each year? We are trying to make a moving eyeball in the stomach that is. A useful enough tool for a GI like Dr. Kumbari, where for, say, 25 to 55, say 50% of their patients, it's relevant, right? Based on the the patient's symptoms and any history of contraindications, I think this device could be relevant to as much as 50% of the population, potentially even more, right? And basically, if we can take that, that patient population, and let's just draw a big circle around first symptoms to emergency room, to primary care, to referral, to GI, to the screening, to finally getting your upper endoscopy, whatever that costs the patient and whatever that costs the healthcare system, the insurance system, and whatever risk that put into the hospital system of all that physical contact, um, which I think, you know, we're acutely aware of, draw a circle around that, put some kind of a number on it, and then say, Hey, for a lot of you folks, you want to drink some water and swallow a pill in your living room instead of doing all of that? I think that's a big business opportunity.
0: What is a traditional endoscopy cost?
1: It's super cheap, right? If you look at the, the code, it's usually like 1700 bucks. But have you ever been to the hospital and gotten a $1,700 bill? Usually that's it's cheap. like, no, no. Let's it's- just call BS right there, Right. We all know the reality. If, if you're going to the hospital six times um, and getting bounced around the system, if you wanna go ahead and add up all those bills, <laughs> yeah. be my guest, right. okay? Right. But the, the reality is upper endoscopies are difficult to get to. Ask your friends what they're, you know, ask your friends with Crohn's or celiacs or, or any kind of GI issue. So how satisfying and, and fun was your journey through, through our healthcare system to get to an upper endoscopy. And unfortunately, you're going to hear, this is the worst thing I've ever done. You know, I've heard six visits, I've heard three visits. My sister Flora is a nurse with excellent healthcare. She had terrible bellyache and at four visits in, they were finally saying, maybe you qualify for an upper endoscopy. Um, her symptoms were gone uh, months before she ever even qualified to get the procedure that's gonna go find nothing And the whole healthcare system just wasted tens of thousands of dollars because it's not appropriate to jam a tube into your sedated body just because you have a bellyache. That's the problem. There's no boogeyman here. There's There's no one bad player here that's making it difficult for this. It's just that our technology doesn't yet make it appropriate to give a gastroenterologist that look inside you every time your belly hurts. We think we can change that. Right. Our goal for a typical patient is to make their cost or or for a typical healthcare provider, like an insurance company. Sorry, I want to cut the cost to get to that upper by about an order of magnitude. Um, And I want to increase the access to this procedure by about an order of magnitude. Right. So for a doctor who's doing patients, they make most of their money treating patients, not hurting them through the, the, the hospital system. So I'd actually like to increase the amount of money a doctor can earn by virtue of increasing the number of patients they can treat. For the health insurance company, for a given name on a a list, I want that name to get get the healthcare situation resolved, get them out of the hospital system, stop the payouts um, for much less money, right? I, I think health insurance companies should love us. I think doctors should love us. I think the clinics those doctors work for that are also tied to, to that, that cash flow based on number of patients. I think they should love us. And most importantly, I, I think a typical patient should, should go from, well, this costs someone a lot of money or maybe I lost my house to, wow, that was just fast and cheap and kind of fun. I got to go on a Zoom call with my doctor and for the first time ever, an unsedated patient, which you know typically your patient in the US is, is fully sedated, You get to be fully sober and and cognizant and awake while your doctor looks around inside your stomach. And so think about what that means from a bedside manner sort of standard of care, right? Usually patients are sort of groggy, recovering from sedation while while a doctor is trying to tell them what they just found, and then they run off. And then later you get like a report that you don't understand. And, you know, you feel a little out of sync with the healthcare system. That's no one's fault. Right. It's just that's that's what technology as of today gives us. I want to change that, right? I, I want you to be like, wow, doc, my belly hurts. Let's ask you some questions about diverticulitis. And if you qualify, quickly answer it and move on.
0: But in fact, don't you need, in order to, to attain that vision, we need a healthcare system that is geared toward results rather than multiple procedures. To get paid, no, because what you're doing is limiting the number of procedures. You no longer need four trips to the hospital before you are qualified for an upper endoscopy. You could do it in one, the first day. It's 500 bucks. Am I right? Or or,
1: so? So tell me, tell me, tell me your, tell me your concern. Let's dig into it.
0: So let's say, currently, we have a system which is based upon, well, Dr. A sends you to Dr. B, who sends you to Dr. C, and they all get paid. right? Sure. Um, If Dr. A can just say, well, take this pill, and we'll find out what's going on there, there's no need for Dr. B and C. Mm. It's cheaper to the system. The insurance company likes it. But the employer of Dr. B and C may not.
1: These are very good questions, right? Um, In all the medical devices I've ever worked on, like this is nine years of my life. um, This is the Phoenix atherectomy system. Uh, It cuts plaque out of arteries. Think of it like a roto-rooter. Okay, yeah. Um, You know, we we would always get asked similar questions every time you bring a new technology in and you start testing it out. um, Oh no, what if you disrupt the system? i've I've actually found that the the healthcare system this is international uh to be extremely interested in any new technology that can do the job better or safer or faster um i've I've never met anyone in our system that wasn't eager to to play with the shiny new thing in fact, um you know when we were doing our cadaver study, you know we had doctors scrubbing up and banging on the door and you know running in and be like. I heard the rumor. Now you just give me that Xbox controller right now. Just give it to me. <laughs> um, people want to play with the the thing if it's gonna if it's gonna be a better tool. I mean, it's kind of like if you if you if you walked into a, you know, here's a good analogy. You know, let's look at a, a raceway. A, you know, a typical race day, you've got a bunch of race cars, and uh, you know, you've got all the pit crews and you've got the announcers. Okay, but then, but let's say it's 1955. And you go in there with like a mclaren f1 or something from like the <laughs> mid 90s and you <laughs> just put that on the track do you think you, people are going to scoff at you no like every single person in that in that ecosystem is going to want to get their hands on it um so i don't i don't have like the full metrics for exactly what will happen when we go to market with possibly the most disruptive piece of medical technology since penicillin I'm going to let the bean counters figure that out because we have very limited cycles on this team. We need to really focus on making this thing work. Because you know, as as exciting as this is now, and as exciting as it is that we're you know know, things are looking very good on the funding side for us right now, um, we have we we are going to get our butts kicked over the next three months, turning this from a technology demonstrator that once in a while gives you one of those whoa moments. You know, I call this like a 5 to 10% product right now. We need to cross that hurdle and go to, you know, honestly, this thing works 90 plus percent of the time or better, right? We, we have our work completely cut out for us making this technology work the way we want it to work. Uh, we'll let someone else figure out exactly what the impact is going to, you know, look at. What's, look what's like the
0: process on. for that? Then?
1: To make it work?
0: Well, yes, to to bring to go to chemicals, <laughs> right. bring it to market, all that sort of thing. How do you oh, envision?
1: So the, the basically, journey? the next the next three months, we 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 did our kickoff meeting uh, just a few days ago and recorded it. Um, and basically, the next three months is just going to be a gnarly R and D sprint. Um, we have a battery in here that's got stainless steel case, and that stainless steel casing is just about equal to the deficit in buoyancy that we are experiencing right now. Um, so I hold this thing up. This represents about as small as we can make it, but check out this bad boy. Um, this one in this hand is one that we actually swallowed a few weeks ago. And to get it to float, I had to cut some of the motors out. i bleached nice. this thing, but uh, it, let's, uh, let's just say my work gets a little weird sometimes. Um, we had to drop some motors. Um, notice how we, we had to put a big air gap in there for buoyancy. Um, you know, this, this thing was like, I, you know, I swallowed it, but it's, it's fatter and longer than, than our, than our clinical product is intended to be. I had to, it was like stuck. Yeah, here. I
0: think I would be afraid to swallow.
1: it. Oh yeah. Right. It was, it was a, that was a rough, rough pill to swallow. But while that thing was in my stomach, we got 375 megabytes out of it. Um, and you realize like, even with this, like infantile like technology, this thing, this thing that really needs a lot of improvements, we are, we are creating like maybe the world's stickiest data set um, and we're doing it in the living room setting. I mean, the, the sheer power of what we can do over time as we get all of this data um, work through, I'm gonna say some alphabet soup here, so I apologize. A little bit of AI, a little bit of ML, right? The data analytics that we can do with this is going to be incredible. Right. So anyways, next couple of months. Yeah, we're looking for smaller motors, lighter batteries. Uh, We need to put a fisheye lens on this thing, put some optical filters to that end. I've been making friends with people that that are experts in the field of optics. Um, And basically, in a few months time, I'd like to be able to go back to Dr. Kumbari and basically say, okay, we think we have the next thing. Let's do either a cadaver study or maybe a limited human trial under an IRB, an institutional review board, um, and see what we come up with. And we're going to do that iterative loop as many times as needed um, to yield something where the doctors say, "I need this in my clinic now." Right? That's that. Our 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 performance requirements are not really so much like any given. Number like this many frames per second, or this resolution, or this size. No, we'll know we have the right thing when doctors are screaming for it, when they are furious that they don't have access to it commercially. At that moment in time, that's when we will, you know, basically raise our series A and go through FDA.
0: Okay, so thus far, my understanding is you raised. About a million dollars from family, friends, angels, that sort of thing.
1: Venture capitalists as well, you know. And we're then about- another
0: million <laughs> eight from DCs?
1: Ah, so current or, situation, and I, I need to be kind of careful because SEC asks us not to do what's called a a general solicitation, um, which which basically would would be an inappropriate call for investors. Um, right. So what what I can say is that we've in past rounds closed out more than a million dollars. Uh, just over a million to go from the notebook sketches I showed you earlier to I think we're up to 24 robots that we've sent through our own bodies um, multiple patents filed one granted a cadaver study which we're very grateful for um, so that's what we did with 1 million dollars um, our our seed round is is essentially um, closed out that's that's a um, we, we're bringing in a total of three million dollars to uh, okay. help us go from a tech demonstrator to a minimum viable product, um, and uh, and now I have a very interesting um, task in front of me, which is, um, you know, can I take a pile of three million bucks and and a company you know worth about 50, fifteen million you know by 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 the term sheet, can I can I take three million dollars and build a hundred million dollar company with it? you know, can I make this product work? Um, that's, that's now, that's now what, what I'm facing. And it's funny because I spent my entire career wishing, dreaming that one day I would be sitting in this situation, you know, that we've gotten funding, um, that we have a team, that we have this device. (laughs) And here now that, that those wishes have been granted, uh, Tim, it's, terrifying you know this is a, this is an incredible moment in 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 the life of this company and um the, the 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 weight and of the pressure that we're feeling right now is pretty intense and that there's there's no other place we'd rather be um but but this is a really exciting time
0: um, well, you, you you um <laughs> you mentioned to me when we when we first talked Tori, that you had kind of a Financially challenging situation growing up. And now, um, you know, you're sitting as the the CEO of a company that may be worth somewhere in the neighborhood of $15 million and, um, you know, going up from there. Are there ways in which that challenging um, youth? Has, has taught you um, how to go through this process?
1: Absolutely. Um, so this is, a, it seems surreal. And I describe myself as a lowercase CEO. Um, I'll be a real CEO when we treat a patient. You know, okay. that's, when, that's when it'll be real. Um, but, it's, but, it, but I have to think of it as real now because enough people have put their life savings into this or making big bets on us place big bets on us, uh, that I can't ever take this anything but seriously. Um, so yes, I will take that mantle. Um, but it's surreal, right? Because I, I still remember when I was young, you know, my, my dad built a, a little dirt floor cabin in the eastern Sierra Nevadas. Um, he delivered me in that cabin. Uh, There's no doctor <laughs> uh, then he hosed my mother off with spring water and ditched her to go hang gliding and uh, she hitchhiked down to town and weighed me in the produce aisle um she tells me I was about six pounds um but I was raised it, you know by hang gliding hippies in the mountains uh traveling throughout Mexico and Central America and it was kind of a different perspective on things um and you know we didn't always have a a home you know there. There were times when my family was uh, living in a stand of trees north of Santa Cruz, California, and you know, like I would wake up um, in my sleeping bag, you know, with a you know, like a you know, a highway patrol officer like rapping on the window, you know, like you can't be here, um, and that that was kind of normal to me, right? And it, I didn't understand until later that that wasn't normal for everyone else. Um, entering public school was was a bit of a culture shock. Uh, because I, I found that a lot of the ideals that my parents espoused weren't necessarily espoused by, um, you know, the, the the typical kids on the playground, but that's going to be normal for most kids. You know, if it was all peace and love at home, you know, the Japanese proverb of the nail that sticks out gets hammered down is definitely something that's... <laughs> wow. I have <hadn't> heard <laughs> that one before, but... That's, that's a good that's one, right?
0: Yeah.
1: Yeah. Um, I think, I think what I got out of that background, though, is just my own definition of what a crisis is, right? Because as a kid, my version of a crisis was you're in Nicaragua and your jalopy just broke down when you were trying to ford a river and the water's coming up through the floorboards and the car's stuck in the middle of the river. And dad is saying, all right, you know what? We're not going to make it across. Get your Get your backpack, get your little brother, get his backpack. I want you to go to the far side of the river. You know, why don't you get some wood, make camp, put the tent up, start a fire. I'll be back in a couple hours. I'm going to hitchhike back to the town we saw back there. I'm going to get some buddies and uh, we'll, we'll, you know, we'll have this sorted in the morning. That was just kind of normal, right? And so when I see founders quitting on their companies because things got difficult or because the 50th investor has turned them down, like understand we've been rejected by more than 300 venture capitalists so far. And, you know, something like five have have said yes to us. Uh, That's more than 1% hit rate. We're actually doing pretty good on that. Getting into Harvard is something like a 5% hit rate. Fundraising is around 1%, right? So having the ability to just define for yourself what is redline is very important. Because it's from my cold, dead hands that someone's going to pull this dream. Right, Like I will be making these robots under an overpass with my co-founder James, <laughs> all right, cooking bacon around a campfire and, and, and playing with little sticks and glue um, one way or another. We, we, we've gotten down to zero, you know, well, we've never gone insolvent and we've never bounced a check. That's very important to us. Um, but we've taken this company down to nearly zero cash numerous times, you know, poor James and I, well, James, You know, we've skipped payroll uh, so many times during COVID, Um, but rather than complain and give up because of COVID, we we decided to say that COVID gives us a license to raise money from anyone, anywhere because of Zoom calls, right? You used to only raise money in your area. COVID ended that. COVID also made it really clear that telemedicine probably has value. And endiotics is never going to brand itself as a COVID company. That's cheap. We're not going to do that. Um, but we are grateful for the, the the focus that the world puts on the value of telemedicine, and also look—you don't have to have millions of dollars to show people that you can make real things and turn a little bit of money into a little bit a little bit more traction. Um, so yeah, you have to take you have to take whatever you know darkness or pain or fear you have. And you just have to become comfortable with it. Like, I'm not fearless, I'm terrified. Almost every day, I'm scared, I, I feel nauseated. Sometimes I'll start meetings and my hands will be shaking, right? That's normal, right? You have to just be willing to be uncomfortable and afraid because that's where all the fun stuff is found.
0: Right. I, I think I, you mentioned one time that you know, so many, You just told me many investors were kind of um, put off by sort of your um, unconventional spirit. Uh, I guess they hadn't thought of, you know, the richest man in the world at that point um, and how lucky they would have been to uh, to have invested in, in Tesla 20 years ago or whatever it was. Sure. But. Is there, is there a challenging or an especially fun story about the capital raise process that you can share with
1: us? I would say, you know, this kind of comes back to Founder Institute. Um, you know, I, I, I did a, you know, I, I, I went into Founder Institute and uh, was able to benefit from their program. And, uh, and then my team was able to kind of rally around that. Um, but Founder Institute relentlessly supports the, their founder network. And so I was doing an online pitch. Uh, this was in, I think, like October, November, of 2019. And uh, this awesome guy named Ariel Gomez Ortigosa from Lantana Biosoft called me up and he said, "Hey, I saw your pitch. Um, I'm based in in León and Guanajuato, but I, you know, I've, I'm in Berkeley. Do you want to meet?" And so I, I drove over there. And I think what I had at that time were, you know, this this robot and and parts of this robot. Okay. Um, And we sat down, we had coffee, and it was amazing because for the first time, a a badass VC wasn't asking me any questions on like market size or go-to-market strategy. He literally was like, let me get my hands on that little robot I saw, right? He got it. He got it. We understood. And he's like, this is the coolest thing I've seen in a long time. I'm very interested in this. And uh, you know what? I don't even have the money in my in in the the company account. We're still fundraising, right? VCs are fundraising just like founders are fundraising. Right. But he said, "Why don't you fly down to Guanajuato and pitch my LP candidates in Spanish?" And so, thank you, Dad. Thank you, Mom, <laughs> for taking me to Nicaragua, right? For leaving me on blankets in Guatemala City, right? And you know, I would make little figurines and sell them to gringo tourists, even though I was a gringo. <laughs> um because I I got on a Volaris flight and I flew down there and I pitched in somewhat mangled Spanish it's been a little while um and we made friends and later that year Lantana made a big commitment to us which turned into uh, uh money in our seed round and I'm sorry money in our angel round and then you know commitments to our seed round as well and uh Ariel and I have become really fast friends um and, it, and, and that could never have happened without this global network with the Founder Institute, um, without a, a, an, a venture capitalist actually looking for frontier level technology and being willing to just meet the founder in person and get under the hood. You know, let's open the kimono and see what's actually there. And then with our willingness to just jump on a flight sight unseen, knowing the 1% hit rate, right? When I got on that flight, I was expecting it to turn into nothing and to absorb a little bit of flack for going on a wild boondoggle like that, but um in the end uh you know that that was a good one. The other one would probably be building one of the world's largest Tesla coils at Burning Man with my founding team years before Endiotics and then years later having uh having Tesla call us up and say you know um." Elon actually asked for the big Tesla coil from Burning Man for the, the cyber rodeo. And, and we, just, we just said to him, like, look, we, we don't, maybe we can do an expense report at the end, but we don't make our money with Tesla coils, right? Tesla coils are, are a thing that we do to unite us and to sort of push the limits of what we can do with electrical engineering and the mechanical engineering that backs that up. We would be honored to attend and participate simply to be among like-minded people and you know so we we drove across the country um that was like a three-day drive to haul the tesla coil out and uh, <laughs> being able to see the giga texas factory and and tour it and you know meet some of the people who are making that possible um at the highest levels um was uh was was pretty incredible and from that we we've been able to make some really cool connections and you know, like I said, I think the company has a bright future, um, but the bottom line is sometimes you have an opportunity to step out into the unknown. And I think hauling a giant Tesla coil to Texas would Qualifying. be one of those. We arrived at the Cambria Hotel in Austin, Texas with $165 in the bank account. All right. That's, that's what commitment means to us. We decided we would be there, right? Right. So we decided to do it, even though it was at the extreme of what was possible, right? It was an absolutely, extremely unlikely thing for us to do something like that. But we knew we needed to be there because we had friends that we needed to make, right?
0: And and so did you get to meet Elon?
1: You know, I I wanted to meet Elon, but uh, I was feeling a little self-conscious because we're losing about 20 to 30% on that Tesla coil right now in terms of like the voltage up top. I don't know why, but th- it's not as angry as it should be. And, and I was just like, I don't know. I don't want to push for that if I'm bringing sort of a wimpy version of my Tesla coil. Oh, um, but we, uh, we did have some uh, interesting conversations with some folks there. You know, there might be a, an opportunity to uh, uh, install a permanent one. And oh. again, you know, we, th- what we say is, look, this is not how we make our money. We're just honored to be friends with people like this because- right. What I was able to say consistently to to some of the inner circle was just thanks to the work done by by the teams over at Tesla and SpaceX. I don't think anyone can look me square in the face and tell me that my dream of micro robotic surgeons in the human body is is impossible, because all I have to do is say, well, what would you have said to Elon three three years before he landed that rocket? You know him and Gwyn and the entire SpaceX team. Right. What I love about Elon is he knows the value of the team he's built. Um, you know, he's a figurehead, but no one's going to say he did that alone. Th- this is this is the work of inspired teams. For well, sure. you've
0: got some interesting college colleagues at uh, uh, and and they've got interesting backgrounds. Tell us about them and how you came together and and uh, you know what their contributions have been. You mentioned James, your co-founder.
1: Sure. Uh, well, my phone that just rang would be a uh, Dr. Alex Lubke. Um, he's known as Maverick in in uh, certain circles, um, and uh, he's he's been a mentor to to me for for quite some time. Uh, we've been working very closely for more than eight years, I believe it is. Um, Alex, or Dr. Lubke, or Maverick, uh, he's from the Google X world. Um, you know, he's he's been uh, you know high up in the Moonshot Factory for many years. And uh, he's our chairman um, and currently acting CTO, managing our deep tech stack. Uh, James Erd, his nickname is Heavy Metal. And the reason for that is that, you know, James has uh, more than 60,000 pounds of machine tools that he and I have collected in our Oakland warehouse. Like, when I say we make robots, I mean, dude, that orange box over there is where we 3D print them. And, you know, we've got the, uh, the warehouse in Oakland's where we machine the polycarbonate nose cones, you know, we're down to 178 microns on, on the, the wall thickness of that polycarb, which is, you know, that's uh, about seven thousandths of an inch, about two sheets of paper. It's a very, very thin nose cone. When people say hardware is hard, they don't have James Erd and his arsenal of equipment and his lifetime of knowledge doing crazy weird stuff. Um, I feel that having a best friend like James, me as more of an arrow or a mechanical style engineer, him as the gnarliest machinist you ever saw. You put us together and you have a superhero. You tear us apart and you have two lonely guys, right? That's, that's how our team works is together we are superheroes. Um, and then, you know, I, I have to say for our CTO emeritus, our co-founder Dan Moyer, Dan is the electrical engineering and computer engineering genius who worked with us to envision how you would stuff that much electronics off the shelf electronics into a package this small. Um, Dan received uh, an offer from Worcester Polytechnic to uh, go pursue his PhD in robotics, which is where he is now. But uh, rumor has it, he might uh, spend some time at the the Giga Texas site this summer. So um, I think uh, as a designer of that giant Tesla coil, I think his skills might be, might mean, might be needed over the summer break. Um, so that that's your technical team. Um, but then on the medical side, we would be completely, we wouldn't be anywhere. We'd be sitting on my living room couch, um, espousing our robot pills to to no one if it wasn't for the doctors involved, right? So, you know, number one on the list, we have to say Dr. Kumbari, uh, just, you know, his he is the youngest chief of gastroenterology at Mayo Clinic. By more than 20 years. Wow. You know, this guy is 39 years old. Last time I checked, maybe he's had a birthday. He's younger than I am. And he is just relentlessly, fiercely passionate about advancing the state of the art um, for for the technology that can help his patients, right? He told us that he had seen a, a, a seminar years ago where people showed the dream of tiny robots in the body. And when we became friends, he said, you know what? I think this is the chance. This is our chance together to make this thing real. And that's why being such close friends with him has been huge. Dr. Hay out of King's College, London, uh, you know, they represent after Johns Hopkins, the number three institution in, in, in the world after, after, after Mayo. And this depends on what list you go. These, these right. are top institutions. Um, Boo Hussein Hay, Dr. Hay. Uh, Boo has just been the warmest, kindest presence. He was the first premier level gastroenterologist to really believe in us and to start putting his own career and his own name and reputation on the line for this dream. And that's why why he's intimately involved with us as well. And then finally, I'm sorry to say it, but we have a bit of a knucklehead doctor on the team as well. Uh, Lieutenant Colonel Benjamin Bonas is an ER doc. Uh, Johns Hopkins Shock Trauma. Now he's at Kaiser Oakland. Um, he's a flight surgeon with the 144th. Um, the same, the same uh, folks that deployed over to Ukraine over the last, um, you know, number of years and trained up those Ukrainian pilots who are doing so well now. Um, the 144th uh, is, is the ones that trained him. Ben's their flight surgeon, and uh, that knucklehead is my older brother. And um, oh, okay. Once in a while you know, I asked him why he chose the 144th because they're in Fresno and we're in the Bay Area because, you know, he could have gone to Moffat and he whispered to me, he's like, Tori, you know, Fresno has F-15s. Those have two seats. <laughs> so he will text me, look up, mofo, um, and I'll look up and he'll just tear over an F-15. And apparently they call him self-loading baggage, but he's a private pilot and they give him, they give him stick time from the back seat. Apparently... Really? Yeah, Yeah. they were doing uh, fighter maneuvers over Big Sur recently, Uh, they hit the tanker five times. And uh, this guy is just having the time of his life. So what what we're trying to do with with Dr. Bonas or Ben, uh, my my big brother, is that we're trying to take this technology beyond just the world of gastroenterology, right? We think this is appropriate for forward deployed medicine for refugee camps, for military bases. We think it's appropriate for the developing world. We also think it's appropriate for this new place, space medicine. And so I'm, I'm actually working pretty hard to, to try to get people to um, test these robots um, on one of the inspiration missions. Um, I'm trying very hard to get in touch with uh, Jared Isaacman, who's, who's been working with St. Jude. Um, because. Jared says that he wants to expand the St. Jude mission um, using telemedicine. He wants to take what St. Jude does for children in their hospitals all around the world. It's this this beautiful vision, like Jared wants to help kids all around the world. And he wants to do it using telemedicine. And so that's kind of where we, we want to meet people like that and show them that these inexpensive little robot pills can potentially be this piercing strong telemedicine that can sort of push through all the funk that people have experienced right I, I i really think you know as we you know as we start to close out i had a chance to to speak briefly with uh, linda Avi from 23andme when we were at the cyber rodeo and linda basically looked me in the eyes and said that her vision is to use technology biotechnology medical technology to basically create like a fundamentally new deal for the, the human population in this next century, right? Like if, if we look back a hundred years, we look at a lot of scarcity defined politics. We look at different populations in conflict with, it, with, with each other. We, we look at different um, economic and social classes in conflict with each other. I think if we look forward a hundred years, we might be building a very different global society. Um, there is a, a concept of abundance that Peter Diamandis from XPRIZE speaks to frequently that is, is pretty exciting. I think if we work together, we can probably use technology and other things to make an awesome world, right? Like, I'm, I'm really excited to be doing this. And honestly, you know, I think for, for 15 minutes, people might think we're pretty cool with, these, with this technology. Maybe for a couple of years, if we're lucky, we'll be relevant. And, you know, you'll think of endiotics and the founders as these, these great people. But honestly, if we fast forward just, just to five or 10 years, I think you're going to start to see this look like an obvious thing and then a relic, right, as, as we get smaller and smaller. My, my goal is to be become a dinosaur as quickly as possible so I can sort of step out of the way, let some other people take the limelight. Fund them, encourage them, and keep that progress going forward.
0: Well, the really exciting thing, I think, is that um, just take healthcare. Healthcare is 20% of GDP. Um, And as we said earlier in our conversation, there's a lot of waste, unnecessary waste in the system. And to the extent that we can limit that, or get rid of it completely. Think about how many dollars are freed up to do other things.
1: It's dollars and it's of, time. Right. Dollars, time and health and lifespan, right? Uh, some of the patients that we interviewed, uh, people I won't name, but close friends, um, you know, six visits to the hospital, 12 months of, of their life. And she, she basically spent 12 months of her life uh, in, in terrible gastric distress, unable to really function professionally, artistically, you know, she, she does amazing professional work, artistic work. Um, she lost a year because, you know, the, the, the current state of healthcare wasn't able to diagnose her with gastritis and, and, and get that not cured, but managed effectively managed. Right. Um, we, we think for patients like that, um, all that cost and all that wasted time and all those wasted heartbeats, we think we can make rapid early diagnoses, right? I don't think we need to make a device that that truly replaces the endoscope, not yet. We need to make a device that rapidly diagnoses, say like 80% of the issues or gives those, those negative results so you can then move on to the next decision tree. And then say that 15 to 20% of patients where you do find something, well, let's find it months or even years earlier, and then let's skip all the hoopla. Let's, let's swallow the robot pill, be like, ooh, oh, that does look bad. I do want a sample of that. You're getting an endoscopy tomorrow, right? And skip all that funk, right? And, and I think if you just look at the wasted dollars, I, you know, there's a huge opportunity, huge but, opportunity. It, but it goes beyond that when we look at the human factors.
0: So let's talk about something. Kind of end on a really fun note. How does an aerospace engineer end up with art
1: at the Smithsonian? How does that happen? You know, this it's it's pretty it's pretty humble. Um, the piece of art is just a a map. Um, it's a map of the city of 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 Burning Man, Black Rock City, and uh, I did I did that piece of jewelry out of uh, like a water jet copper and stainless steel just did, did some machining got into uh like iris mechanisms okay but what i do is um i i take things that are that are uh really intimidating to me because i'm scared of so many things um this this map of the city of burning man um it's a, it's a planetary gearbox <laughs> it's basically like a geared a geared toy yeah um, and the reason that i got into making handheld planetary gearboxes is that i'm i'm an engineer and i'm i was literally intimidated by planetary gears there, it was like gears within gears and suns and planets and internal gears it was just i i was afraid of them I, for some reason i was just having trouble getting it and when i discovered a makerspace, uh, it was called tech shop at the time I realized I could go in and laser cut and start playing with the things that, that freak me out. And just over time, you start to get this intuitive grasp, You know, lean into the thing that scares you. Um, and eventually you make friends with it. And so I, I ended up making jewelry. Um, I ended up getting dragged to Burning Man. It was the last place I wanted to go because I felt like I had been sort of raised in Burning Man. And so I was actually trying to go in the opposite direction. But um, when my friend Gene dragged me to Burning Man, I started to see the scale of the art and the scale of the, uh, the ambition that would be Dr. Lubke trying to ring in. And, and I started to realize, um, you know, this is, this is actually, this is actually relevant. This is something I would like to do. Um, and uh, basically, you know, let's see how far we can push it. And uh, pretty quickly, um, you know, we, we found a theme camp. We started building giant Tesla coils. And, uh, you know, from there on out, uh, we we got invited to the Smithsonian. And most of our first investors uh, here at Endiotics were, were people that saw our work out on Playa.
0: Really? Well, that's just it, the whole thing is fascinating. You're fascinating, Tori, from the standpoint of here's an aerospace engineer who's learned how to commandeer his fears and redirect them to all of these uh. Very valuable pursuits. Um, it's why we do the podcast. Yeah, and um, I thank you for for taking the time to join us today.
1: Thank you so much, Tim. I really appreciate it.
0: Great. Well, I look forward to hearing more about uh, about your journey and uh, uh, the journey of PillBot toward um, really- toward success. Thanks, Tori. Thanks for tuning in to the Life Sciences and Biotech podcast. We'll see you in the next episode. The information contained in this website and podcast are purely informational and not considered investment recommendations. Tim Dory's participation in Biotech Insights is separate and apart from his role as an investment advisor representative. Nothing contained herein can be construed as a recommendation or endorsement of any of the companies discussed Tim Doherty also has no financial affiliation with any of the companies mentioned in this communication. Tim Doherty makes no representation that the information contained in this material is accurate and is under no obligation to update this information as changes occur.